This is Angel Insights, the show that delves inside the world of angel investing to discover their tips, tactics and strategies from some of the world's leading angel investors. And joining me today is Edward Lando. Edward is an active angel investor and the founder of Horizons, the coding bootcamp that teaches you to code real products before you graduate. And Edward must be considered one of the youngest angels in the world, being only 23 years old, giving him a unique insight and perspective into the current market. In today's episode, we discuss the pros and cons of having an operator background as an investor, what metrics early stage investors should be honing in on, and the commonalities of successful consumer products. And for the accompanying article of today's show, head on over to syndicateroom.com, where you can find our entire investor academy with a range of articles from previous episodes. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on the show. So reach out to us on Twitter at syndicateroom. But for now, it's time to introduce the main man. So without further ado, I welcome my good buddy, Edward Lando, angel investor and founder at Horizons. Welcome to Angel Insights. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Harry. I'd love to kick off today by hearing how you made your way into the wonderful world of angel investing and tech startups. What what was the impetus for you entering the industry? Well, for angel investing, I realized that um, I just spent a lot of my time meeting up with interesting founders and that actually I, I knew a lot and that I also reached out to to anyone who was doing something cool and sort of at, at the beginning didn't realize that, that it could be a job, but then sort of it started, started uh, you know, dawning upon me and, and my friends and, and even my parents told me, you spend a lot of your time doing this, uh, you know, why don't you also uh, invest on top of working uh, on your startup? Mm-hmm. And, and so was it for you then the value add that you could provide or was it their financial motivations? What was it? I would say, uh, you know, I, I definitely think that, I, that, that it was partly the value add and also partly from a selfish point of view, I'm just very, very curious about, about a bunch of different ideas. Mm-hmm. And as you know, when you're, when you're working on a startup, you have to be 100, 100% focused on that one idea. So this is sort of a way, especially if you get in early, to unofficially... Uh, be there at the, the starting moments of a bunch of different companies and not only one. So it's a way to satisfy that curiosity and to be in the trenches with a bunch of different entrepreneurs who, who end up becoming very good friends, who I respect a lot and to sort of like suffer through it with them and, and, and hustle with them. I have to ask then, as, as a startup founder myself and knowing, as you said, the 100% that it takes to go in, do you find it difficult then to disperse your time between your investments and, and your own startup horizons? I do a little bit. I think that that's uh, one of my many weaknesses. It's that I'm, I'm a little bit uh, stretched thin uh, because it's, you know if, you, if you're curious, you, you can sort of uh, start accepting uh, sort of coffee meetings with everyone and, and, and being curious about everything, uh, wanting to do it all, uh, while at the same time, you know, startups require sort of this hyper focus. So it's definitely very difficult, and you have to be sort of very disciplined about allocating certain percentage of your time to talking to companies and founders and another percentage to, to doing your own work and, and, and sort of, you know, sort of reserving the meat of the day, let's say, for your startup. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then in the periphery, you know, doing your, your secondary job. What would you say then is your, you said about time allocation there, what's your time allocation to kind of deal sourcing and then helping with the investments that you've made already? 
Ideally, it would be something like 80, 80, 20, 80 percent on my own startup and 20 percent of my time talking to founders and, and, and talking to talking to the founders that I work with and talking to new founders. Mm-hmm. Um, although the investments that I've made, I end up talking to them every day almost. They become very good friends. So that's that's not even work anymore. And do you, do you find that a problem ever, blurring the lines of investor and friendship? Or do you think that can actually be a good thing? For now, it hasn't been. I actually really love it. We were... Uh, uh, my friend and I were working out with uh, one of the founders that I just investing in, uh, invested in over the weekend. It was great. So I think that that's part of the benefit of being a uh, 23-year-old angel investor and founder. Mm-hmm. It's that you, um, you know, as long as you don't, don't sort of like go overboard and blur the lines too much, it's sort of a very good relationship uh, to, to have as sort of a friend of the founder and not sort of this, this, this guy in a suit who's, who's sort of pressuring you and, and who doesn't have any empathy for, uh, for what you're doing. And, and as you said, though, 23, angel investing, it, it, it is unique. So what are the other benefits other than, other than being different from the kind of blazer wearing golf buddy investor that, you know, is the stereotype investor? I think that one of the main benefits, you know, I thought, you know, I, I wondered whether there would be sort of a credibility problem because, you know, it's like, who the hell are you, 23-year-old person, to ask me and sometimes, you know, sort of an experienced entrepreneur, all sorts of questions. You know, they, they have sometimes they have much more experience than you and, and they've actually been more successful than you in the past. So, so I wondered, you know, would there be a credibility problem? But I think that as long as you, you show that you're sort of very curious about what they're doing, you ask good questions, you're respectful of their time, uh, it's actually a very good situation to be in because a lot of people find it refreshing and, and, and you, you end up being able to give more of yourself, give more of your time because you don't have, uh, I suppose, as much of a commitment to, to other things as, as some of the other investors. You're still out there to prove yourself. You're still an entrepreneur, even as an investor. In terms of interacting with VCs and, and, and providing follow-on funding for your investments, which will come in, say, 12 months if you started investing three months ago, just mm-hmm. you know, on average, mm-hmm. how, how are you anticipating that interaction with VCs? Do you think there will be any, any difficulty? So far, they've been incredibly, incredibly friendly. And I think that uh, part of being, you know, the good VCs, at least, mm-hmm. I think that their approach towards entrepreneurs is perhaps the same approach towards uh, angel investors that they might work with, which is that as long as someone has the right attitude, works hard, is smart, and, and is a good person and a, and a trustworthy person, uh, who's also grateful for the help that, that they receive, uh, that they're very open to helping and they're very inclusive. So that, that's been great. And are you actively looking to interact with VCs with the, with the deliberate intention of being able to utilize their connections in the future for follow-on funding? Uh, abs- I mean, absolutely. I think that part of being an investor is, is finding other investors who you really get along with and respect and, and whose opinion you, you trust in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that uh, building that up as someone who's just starting off is definitely one of the one of the main priorities. Are there any investors that kind of hold true that you most respect and admire in the industry? Uh, some that I know, you know, I mean, Charlie, uh, we were talking about it from, from Brooklyn Bridge VC has been incredibly helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also Ryan from, from Bassett, uh, Bassett Investors, who, who's been uh, very kind as well. Uh, in terms of people who I don't know yet, but who I think are, are, are incredible, of course, there's Chris Saka, who just seems to be an incredible hustler. I, I what a of, legend. Right, I sort of followed his story from the outside. It, it's quite incredible how he how he got into to some of these uh, 
to some of these deals. So, you know, look forward to, to hopefully meeting him at some point. And I'd love to kind of talk about your strategy now when it comes to investing and dive a little deeper. So what what do you really look for as an investor? What gets you excited in a in a product or a startup? You know, maybe maybe my approach will change, but at least for now, especially at the earliest stage, you know, almost uh, to some extent as a as a co-founding investor, uh, what what I do look what I look for is just people who have some sort of special trait about them who are particularly perseverant, huge aspirations. Uh, but also sort of like very, uh, very real and grounded in terms of their work ethic. And, uh, and, and sort of th- there's some people, I, I'm sure you feel this, when, when you talk to them, you get a good vibe from them mm-hmm. and, and, and others you don't. And so I, I need to get a good vibe from them. And I just like people who are tremendously ambitious, who work very hard, who are smart, uh, and, and ideally who have a very good reason of working on what they're working on. And in terms of getting a good vibe with them, how long does that traditionally take? Obviously, you don't have like a three-month, six-month window. But right, will, right, will, right. will you invest after two or three meetings, or will it take ten or twelve? Oh know? yeah, oh yeah, definitely. And especially as uh, uh, you know, one of the main criticisms that you hear about investors sometimes is that they just suck up all your time, right? And mm-hmm. that and that they're not respectful of the fact that you have to get other things done. So part of the difficulty and part of the challenge is sort of making your mind up over a few meetings. And sometimes there, there's some of these investments that I've made where I haven't, uh, I didn't meet the founder in person uh, before doing it. I, it was only, I try to have a video call at least because that, that adds a lot more context. Mm-hmm. Um, in an ideal world, I'd love to meet with, with them in, in, in person all, but sometimes it's, uh, there's sort of a, it's, it's particularly time sensitive and you have to make your mind up with, with uh, you know, only two to three Skype calls. And in terms of the deal itself, do you have kind of a preferred investment uh, range, and, and how much equity do you look for in the company? Uh, so far, you know, I've been writing small checks, like twenty-five to fifty thousand, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's been mostly quite early on. So I, I guess uh, for better or for worse, sort of seed or seed stage valuations are around like you know four or five million these days. Mm-hmm. So that gives you like around like one percent of the company. Absolutely. Okay. And as, as that early stage angel then, do you, do you hone in on any certain metrics other than getting on with the founder and loving the product? Are there anything that determines whether you'll invest in the product? Do you, you, know, do you right. really hone in on traction? Right, right, right. Well, actually, uh, you know, we mentioned Chris Saka. There's one thing that I, that I very much like that he says, which is, uh, you know, he says that he sort of only plays rigged games and, and that he likes to essentially invest in something that is already doing well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and sort of help it do incredibly well versus some people who think that they might be able to invest in something that's not doing well at all but help turn it around. So I think that, of course, selfishly, because it gives you more information, being able to invest in something uh, in a company that's already sort of that already has some, some, some good revenue and growing revenue or some good traction is a huge plus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think part of that as well, sort of having more information, is, is also looking for situations where founders have certain unfair advantages, either through, let's say, their previous job, if they spent five, six years in the, in, in the industry and know everyone, and, and that's going to be their sales, uh, their sales approach, sort of hit up their old contacts, and, and that's how they've been growing so far. They have sort of a very, very good idea about how to scale and, and some relationships that other people don't have. That's that's always incredibly helpful. Now I'm sure you've heard this before, um, and I'd be I'd love to hear what you think on it. And it's you know a lot of investors with many years' experience, you know your Josh Koppelmans, Naval Ravikant's, have mm-hmm. said that the first 
I, th- I think so, uh, one even said the first 30 angel investments you make uh, will not um, pan out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, does, does that concern you as a, an angel in your first year angel investing? Do you think about it? Do you agree with it? What's your take on it? Uh, I hope that won't be the case. I always wonder whether <laughs> I always wonder whether my startup will end up funding my angel investments, or my angel investments will, will end up funding my startup. I think. I mean, what I like about that statement, and and I, you know, I, I I've sort of followed uh, Naval Ravikant and sort of his podcast and stuff like that. Very much like what he says mm-hmm. is that there's a lot of modesty, and uh, I, I think that some of the less good investors think that they're able to. Uh, to tell so early on, right? By they know something about the industry, or they sort of try to approach it with this sort of very sophisticated thesis that they made up. Uh, versus, I, I think that some of the better investors are more humble and realize that they know they actually know a lot less for sure. Uh, and so they they realize that when you do end up writing that check, you're most likely kissing that money goodbye, uh, and, and you're lucky if you see it if you see it ever again. And and you mentioned that your startup and which will fund which. Firstly, where are you leaning now? What what one do you think will fund which? I, I don't know. I hope I I think that both will end up doing well. Okay, and and let's discuss then the the nitty gritty of your startup and and running your startup alongside angel investing. Mm-hmm. Do you think it helps having a hand in both operational and investing worlds at the same time? It's quite it's quite a rarity. It is. It is especially I think. Very lucky, very lucky to be able to do that at 23. I, yeah. I, I actually love it. I think that, first of all, from, from a sort of uh, approach strategy point of view, thinking about your startup as an investor uh, and then thinking about your investments as an entrepreneur is quite helpful. It gives you sort of uh, different insights. You know, there's always, there's always a power dynamic, I think, for, for, for young founders where they, you know, they, they, they wonder how, how to pitch their thing to VCs and then actually, when it's, if it's doing incredibly well, suddenly the power is in their hands and VCs sort of all come knocking at their door. Uh, I, I think it, this sort of uh, removes that, that, that power imbalance to some extent. And actually, I was telling you about this before, uh, before the podcast for, for Horizons, we're, we're not even planning on raising money at the moment. And we realize that we don't necessarily need it. So I definitely like having, like being, being in both worlds. I also think that it's particularly uh, sort of satisfying and uh, especially for you know, if you're interested in a bunch of different ideas, but can't do all of them as a founder. And the bootstrapping thesis is an interesting one. So, how do you identify between a business that that is bootstrappable, if that is a word, mm-hmm. uh, and one that's VC fundable? Because all businesses, in the end of the day, you know, Horizons, your startup, mm-hmm. could accelerate much greater with a twenty million Series A naturally right. than if it was. Right, right, right. So, what makes you think something's available to be bootstrapped compared to not? I think that I mean even Horizons at some point maybe maybe we'd love to raise money a Series A or Series B a Series B but at least when we when we're doing well uh, I, I think that some businesses just obviously make make good money from day one and others have to delay that you know to, to create sort of a great uh, a great consumer product or service that people won't necessarily pay for upfront but will pay for at some point so I think that um, it, it just all depends on, on, on what you're selling. And what do you think your operations experience then has taught you and you've, that you've applied directly to your investing strategy? I think that, well, one thing, which is, which is like a, a human psychological thing, is that I, I, I do believe that everyone has imposter syndrome. So when you look at companies from the outside, uh, when you look at people and investors from the outside, you always, to some extent, feel that they have, they have their things much more together than you do. Uh, and, and then suddenly, 
you know, as an investor, you start getting insights, they, you know, founders start revealing things to you uh, that you would not necessarily see in articles and in podcasts and in fireside chats. And you realize like, you know, my goodness, like these guys look like they're doing really well on the outside, but they, they've also sort of got the same existential questions as me as a founder. And they're struggling with exactly the same issues. And, and, and I think a huge part of it is realizing essentially like eternally, constantly realizing it's not just me. This is the same for everyone. So, so yeah. do you try and not compare yourself to any other people and just focus on your own work? Is that, is that your solution to that problem? You know, it, it's, it's difficult to not be constantly sort of tantalized by, let's say, what, like what you read in the news, right? You open TechCrunch and like as a young founder, you're still sort of working on your startup, bootstrapping it. And then you see this incredibly successful startup that just raised or seemingly successful startup that just raised $300 million. So it's very difficult to not, uh, to not compare yourself. But some of the most impressive founders around me are, are indeed very good at creating a vacuum. You know, they say, I, I, in fact, don't talk to many people these days. I don't read the news that much. I'm not, I'm not that interested in other companies. We're just focused on our thing. And, and it's sort of a very, you know, sort of Binary, Elon, yeah. Elon Musk-like first principles approach of we're not going to sort of listen to all this advice out there, all these articles, all these medium posts about how to live your life better. And I'm just going to focus on figuring things out for myself. And, and that seems like a much healthier approach, actually. And then before we dive into a lightning round, I want to touch on one of your areas of expertise, and, and that's the consumer space. So what are your thoughts on successful consumer products? I mean, what are the commonalities in those products that makes them successful, do you think? Well, I've actually had really good discussions with uh, one of the companies that I invested in about this, the, the Mindy team. This is a bunch of, uh, of French guys who are three, three out of four of them studied as, uh, as art students. And they sort of have a very, very much of an artist approach to, to consumer products. And I, I think that we often agree that uh, successful consumer products just have very, very little friction and that we, when we're building something, suddenly sort of like we're very much removed from reality. It's easy to remove yourself from reality and to overestimate the amount of complexity and the amount of friction that people, that users will tolerate. Uh, you know, these guys are just obsessed with building products that have, that are just incredibly simple to use one big action. I mean, if you look at, you know, they, if you look at Uber, if you look at uh, Instagram, if you look at Snapchat and all these things, just very, very few actions and immediately you get a tremendous reward, sort of this magical moment that happens. It's about trying to find something that people fundamentally, viscerally want uh, that has not been done in that way before and, and then trying to reduce it to the most simple action uh, possible, which is incredibly difficult and which at the beginning can look sometimes very stupid. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And do you apply that to the onboarding process then? Where you mentioned Uber, Snapchat, Instagram, do you apply that to the likes of Mindy and your views towards consumer startups? Very much. I think that, you know, again, people over, I think that uh, it's very funny how everyone is sort of a uh, schizophrenic person to some extent. As a user, we're all very lazy. We're all in it kind of for ourselves. When we order food, and, and, you know, we have to fill out this, this new form with our billing address and our, our credit card. So we get incredibly irritated. But then when we're building our product, so we, we, we assume, oh, of course, people want to do this 10-step sign-up process and, uh, and enter all their information. And you suddenly sort of like forget exactly, you sort of hide the truth from yourself and you forget exactly what you felt as a, as a customer. So I think that a lot of these very good product people that I've spoken with are fine with skipping steps that most people include in their onboarding process or in their product by default because everyone else is doing it. So I think that one of the biggest challenges as an investor and as the founder is that 
you can end up doing things because other people are doing them. I think that very few people make up their mind for themselves. Uh, and, and so again, this idea of working from first principles as a founder and as an investor, uh, making up your own rules and, and sort of being creative enough and bold enough to remix and to say, you know what, maybe I don't need to, why do I need a login? Do I need a login for this app? You know, you try Yik Yak and, mm-hmm. and you, you don't actually need to log in when, when you onboard. Uh, I, I think that's very, that's very difficult. But uh, it's part of part of building something new and successful. And I'd love to dive into a quick fire round now. So I say a short statement, and you hit me your immediate thoughts. Sure. So, what's the hardest thing about being an angel? I think the hardest thing is, um, you know, I was telling you that I like being, I love surrounding myself with incredibly smart and and, and ambitious, hardworking people, and and I want to invest in a lot of them, or at least I want to talk to a lot of them. Uh, and and of course, I can't invest in most of these people. And so, actually. Being able to pass on an investment while maintaining a relationship with someone who you like and just not only, not necessarily just investing because you're friends uh, is, is very difficult. It, it's sort of a very, you, you have to be very tactful and, and it's, it's very messy. And then your favorite book and why? I'm a huge fan of fiction. Very rarely read uh, you know, nonfiction or sort of online medium articles and all that. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say um, I love Herman Hesse, you know, Narcissus and Goldman, Siddhartha, I love uh, Tolstoy, Anna Karenina. I love, love Anna Karenina. Love Kurt Vonnegut. I think that, by the way, you know, reading things like Cat's Cradle or uh, Slaughterhouse Five and all these books that take an incredibly zoomed out view on sort of the human condition and human experience makes you sort of uh, much more mature and, and, and much wiser about all these little daily problems that we get caught up in in, in, our, in our work uh, as founders and as investors or as just you know, people in, in the workforce. Uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's great to just be able to escape as well. You know, I think that that um, especially in the U.S., uh, as someone who who grew up in, in France, people are just constantly boasting about how hard they work, no matter where they work, how many hours they put in. And of course, that that's not really what, what matters the most. It's sort of not necessarily the most insightful work most of the time, and can be low quality because you're very tired. Mm-hmm. Being able to escape also in sort of another world and other realms, and being able to travel through these other lives and, and, and these books is 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 very relaxing, very, very uh, refreshing. And then what founder do you most respect or admire? There, there, there are a few uh, founders and entrepreneurs who I just think are, are incredible. I'll, I'll give you two. I think one of them is uh, kind of a, well, has become kind of a cliche, but I think that Travis Kalanick is very, very impressive simply because of his perseverance and his ability to just execute and roll out incredibly ambitious plans. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just love people who are hyper-focused and who will sort of make something happen no matter what. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then a totally different non-tech space. I very much admire, although I don't know him, uh, Brunello Cuccinelli. Uh, I, I don't know if you know who that is. No, he's the, don't. He's, he's, the, he's the founder of Brunello Cuccinelli, the, the luxury cashmere brand. And, you know, you see these, you see these in London, you see it in London, you see it in San Francisco, everywhere. He's built an incredible cashmere brand, making some of the most beautiful clothes in the world. And I would encourage you to read up. There's an incredible uh, New Yorker profile about him. Mm-hmm. He grew up in this little village in Italy, Solomeo, which I think had only 800 inhabitants. And instead of sort of leaving and, you know, seeking opportunity elsewhere, he stayed there 
and, and today employs everyone in the village, I think it's now 1,200 people, has built an incredible theater there that attracts people from all, all over the region. Ha employees are, are just having terrific working conditions. They all have, you know, prosciutto for lunch and San Pellegrino, and, uh, and they just make the most beautiful clothing. And if you go on his websites, you'll see just quotes from Dostoevsky, and you'll see he has a bust of, I think, Obama and Socrates in his office. Just a fascinating Renaissance man who lives in a very sort of humble house, uh, just incredible character, incredible character. And then finally, your most recent investment and why you said yes. The most recent one that I, that I can talk about is this company called Ring Around, which is uh, soon going to rebrand, actually. Uh, and they do sort of, they do, if you know Teespring, they're like Yes, Teespring. absolutely, yeah, Teespring. They're like Teespring for jewelry. So they, they make custom jewelry very, very quickly. Was that, not, was that not Brooklyn Bridge too? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I discovered that opportunity thanks to uh, Charlie and Ryan, uh, Ryan from Bassett. You know, um, Ring Around, they're already doing, doing quite well uh, on, on a monthly basis. And, and the founder, Eric, if you meet him, is just an incredibly hardworking person, a hustler, a charmer, is able to recruit the best people. So it was very much founder-based and also based on the quality of the recommendation from, uh, from Ryan and Charlie. Well, Edward, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I've hugely enjoyed chatting with you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks a lot, Harry. Same here. Again, a huge thank you to Edward for giving up his time today to come on Angel Insights. It was absolutely fantastic to hear his perspective as a young angel entering the angel investing world and partnering with some of the best angels in New York. And for today's accompanying article from Edward, then head on over to the Syndicate Room Investor Academy at syndicateroom.com or you can follow us on Twitter at Syndicate Room to never miss an episode or update. And we'd absolutely love to hear your feedback too. So you tweet us on at Syndicate Room for that also thank you so much and we look so forward to bringing you next week's episode finally before we leave we'd like to remind you that early stage investing is risky therefore please make sure that you do engage in the property due diligence prior to making the investment thank you so much